Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's HQ in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It's Thursday, November 29th, and today we're going to devote the whole show to a huge story, the birth of the first gene-edited babies. Yeah, Damian, huge is probably an understatement here. So first, we're going to recap this fast-moving story, breaking down all of the most important developments since the news broke at the end of Thanksgiving weekend. Next, we're going to talk to our stat colleague, Sharon Bagley, who will be calling in from Hong Kong. Sharon spent the week there covering the second international summit on human genome editing, where a scene played out like no one had ever seen before. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? You can get more exclusive coverage from Adam, Rebecca, Damien, and others at Stat with a Stat Plus subscription. Stat Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks to you, our podcast listener, subscribe to Stat Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. Officials say they are investigating the scientist who claims to have created the world's first genetically edited babies. Hong Jian-Kuei says the twin sisters were born with the immunity to HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. Now, he claims he altered their DNA in a lab using a gene-editing technique called CRISPR. So, Damien, you had a good tweet the other day likening the big news of this week to, quote, the end of all humankind. So what's the high-level recap of what's going on here? So for the first time ever, babies have been brought into the world that have had their DNA edited while they were still embryos. Or at least that's according to the claims of the Chinese scientist who says he created them, He Zhangkui. The researcher said he used CRISPR to disable a gene called CCR5 to try to confer resistance to HIV upon these embryos. So far, baby twin girls have been born to a Chinese family in which the father was HIV positive. And the researcher claims that a third crispr baby is on the way via a second pregnancy in another family. And needless to say, this is all extremely controversial, right? That's right. This is a huge and ethically fraught step forward for science and society. And the condemnation was pretty universal and immediate on both sides of the Pacific Ocean. I think it's very disturbing. It's inappropriate. It goes against all of the guidelines that were established by the National Academy of Sciences report from 2017. And uh, I think there's just no way to defend it. That was Jennifer Doudna, the UC Berkeley CRISPR pioneer, speaking on CNN. And Rebecca, what's the reaction been like in China? Just about everyone there has been trying to distance themselves from the scandal. And it really is sounding like the researcher went rogue. The babies were purportedly CRISPRed through a clinical trial that was carried out there, but nobody seems to want to talk about it or know what's going on. The Chinese researchers' universities said it didn't know this was happening. The hospital that the researcher said he got approval from said it didn't participate in any clinical trial and that the babies weren't even delivered there. So not long before we started recording this podcast on Thursday, the Chinese government said it had halted the research that allegedly led to these births. So this all seemed to come out of nowhere on Sunday when we first learned about what this researcher had done. How did that all play out? 
Yeah, so it started on Sunday night when MIT Tech Review's Antonio Regalado published a story based on some documents suggesting that there was a clinical trial afoot involving crispr embryos in China. And then a few hours later, the Associated Press published a story that seemed to have been months in the making, revealing that not only had the embryos been CRISPR'd, but that they were now baby girls. And then we later learned that Dr. He had hired an American PR professional to orchestrate the entire thing. And the reveal include a series of scripted YouTube videos explaining what he had done. Wait, back up, Adam. He hired a PR agent and they told him to do this? Yeah, Rebecca, you know, Dr. He hiring a PR agent was kind of just one of these sort of WTF moments in this story that led a lot of people to think that this was kind of bordering on tabloid speculation and a lot less about science. I think it's worth taking a moment to talk about those aforementioned YouTube videos because they're pretty remarkable. In each one, He is standing in a lab, uh, speaking plaintively into the camera, often smiling and describing really calmly the kind of science that, as we now know, would lead his colleagues to basically gnash their teeth and rend their garments. Here's a clip from one of the videos. Two beautiful little Chinese girls named Lulu and Lana came crying into the world as healthy as any other babies a few weeks ago. The girls are home now with their mom, Grace, and dad, Mark. Grace started her pregnancy by regular IVF with one difference. Right after we sent her husband's sperm into her egg, we also sent in a little bit of protein and instruction for a gym surgery. When Lulu and Lana was just a single cell, this surgery removed the doorway through which HIV entered to infect people. Rebecca, what do we know about this guy? So He Zhongkui goes by JK. He's Chinese, but he did his postgraduate work in the U.S. He did his PhD at Rice University in Houston, and he did his postdoc at Stanford. After that, he moved back to China and started a company there, got a professorship at a university there. This is not a guy who is a superstar in the CRISPR community. To be sure, he was sort of up and coming and starting to be better known, but he was by no means a leader or pioneer in this field, and he doesn't have an extensive publication record on CRISPR. So obviously we all found out about this on Sunday night, but did anyone along the way know what he was up to? Yeah, so at least one researcher knew about his plans as far back as a year ago. I talked with that researcher. Uh, he's Mark DeWitt of UC Berkeley, and he said when... He told him about what he was planning to do. DeWitt told no one, but warned He not to do it. Over the course of their conversations in the past two years, Mark DeWitt got to know He fairly well. And here's what Mark DeWitt had to say about the guy at the center of one of science's biggest firestorms ever. He was, he's very friendly, he's very ingratiating. He has an air about him with the way that he represents things and people that seems a little bit, like he, he has, maybe has a tendency to kind of overstate and oversell. So to put what He claims to have done in context, this was sort of inevitable, right? I mean, as CRISPR marches forward, someone was going to be the first pioneer. That's right. But I think one thing I keep hearing in my reporting this week is that this didn't go the way it should have. This should have gone according to the norms and guidelines that govern science. If someone did it already in all silence without any transparent reporting of what was done, then it is really um, something unexpected and unwanted. So that was Cecile Janssens, an epidemiologist at Emory University who studies the brave new world of genetics. And we talked to her right after the story broke on Monday morning. 
So now let's take this story over to Hong Kong, where all of this unfolded at a big international genome editing conference. Just to remind everyone here that uh, we, we want to give uh, Dr. He a chance to explain what he's done uh, in terms of the, the science in particular, but also uh, other, other aspects of, of, of what he's done. That was Robin Lovell Badge, a scientist at the Francis Crick Institute, nervously introducing the presentation on the CRISPR babies on Wednesday morning Hong Kong time. So as we said at the top of this podcast, this entire controversy unfolded at an event called the Second International Summit on Human Genome Editing. And this conference brought together experts from around the world to Hong Kong, and they expected to hear presentations on scientific breakthroughs and lectures on research ethics. What they didn't expect was to hear news that would change the course of humanity. Our own Sharon Bagley flew to Hong Kong for that summit, which means she was front and center for the big reveal. And now Sharon is braving a 13-hour time difference to join us. Sharon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So Sharon, how big of a deal is this CRISPR baby news? Like on a scale from one to Gattaca, where does this rank? Oh, I think we are well past Gattaca at the moment, Rebecca. Um, We're probably into, you know, Gattaca 2 at least. No, it's really been bedlam here in Hong Kong at the International Human Genome Editing Summit. Really, like nothing any scientist I've spoken to has ever seen. Sharon, what's the atmosphere like at that conference in Hong Kong? How much of the conversation is centered around crispr babies? So the conference is now two days in, as I speak to you. It has one day to go. The first day was, you know, basically normal. Everybody kept to the script. But by the second day, which was the day that Jan Kui He was going to speak and did speak, there was clearly sort of a sense of impending, either impending doom or really impending just amazing news. And by that, I mean the scientists who came before He seemed a little bit, not exactly flustered, but clearly feeling that they were the warm up acts and everybody was waiting for, you know, pick your favorite pop star, um, Bruce Springsteen. And it was like the audience couldn't wait for them to get off the stage. There was a, a mad rush of about 200 news photographers and other journalists. The aisles were packed. There was security. The clicks of the cameras were so loud that it was at times difficult to hear the actual talk. So very, very different from your standard science conference. So Sharon, how would you describe his style and and his presentation when he was telling the Genome Editing Summit about his work? You know, Dr. Head did not take the stage as any other speaker did. Um, He had security. He came in from a side entrance. But once he was there, um, you know, in shirt sleeve, tieless, jacketless, he just very smoothly went through his presentation, not terribly defensively either. Um, He said he was proud of what he did. However, he really got slammed by the questions, and I can only characterize his answers as those like a politician gives on Meet the Press or any Sunday morning talk show. He was evasive. He really did not answer, and that was called out by many of the scientists I spoke to, that he was not answering fully, transparently, etc. So let's listen to a clip from that presentation now. Uh, First, I must apologize that these results leaked unexpectedly, taking away from the community of the full data being presented immediately in a scientific venue. Sharon, you had some great details in your story recapping that, including you know one very storied scientist having to take an antacid just to deal with, I guess, the anxiety in the room. What was it like as that presentation unfolded atmospherically? 
Everyone was, of course, quiet. In fact, the moderator said that if people, uh, you know, create a disturbance of any kind, I'm not exactly sure what he was anticipating, he was going to halt the proceedings. It was almost like a judge in court saying, you know, if I don't have quiet in my courtroom, I'm, I'm clearing this thing. But the, the scientists, especially the experts on um, CRISPR and analysis of genome sequences, they were literally sort of pitched forward in their seats. But I think it took a long time to sink in what, you know, Dr. Hare was telling people. For instance, he told us that there was a second pregnancy already established. That almost went over the head of the crowd. Um, and it was only later when I was interviewing people that they said, oh my God, did he really say that? And similarly, yes, our, our friend with the, um, the antacid, that was David Liu, who was at Harvard. And he invented base editing, which is a uh, more precise form of uh, CRISPR genome editing. And he came into the meeting thinking that, you know, the reports of the CRISPR babies was awful terrible, etc. But when I grabbed him um, after the presentation, he said it was even more appalling, more abhorrent than he thought. And I said, how can that possibly be? It was pretty bad, you know, before this when we knew what we knew. And he said, because of the details that were presented in terms of the genetic analysis of the two embryos who became reportedly the two little girls, that what was done in this do we call it an experiment, a study, something, just flouted every ethical norm you can think of. And yes, as he was listening to this, he had to pop antacids in order to get through it. So what's the timeline here? Was he always going to talk about this or did MI Tech Review scoop precipitate this entire thing? So he had been on the program scheduled to speak in a session called Human Embryo Genome Editing. However, when Dr. He submitted his slides, the ones that he was supposedly going to present here at the summit, they did not include anything about human pregnancies. So nobody had any idea here that pregnancies had occurred. In fact, David Baltimore, the Nobel laureate and chairman of the summit organizing committee, told me when I spoke to him for the sort of pre-meeting story that I did, I was asking about, you know, rumors that Chinese labs had established pregnancies with CRISPR-ed embryos. And he said, I just cannot believe that that's the case. China is very concerned about its international reputation in the world of science. It does not want to be perceived as a rogue nation scientifically. That kind of got blown out of the water. And the first person <laughs> called on to speak after Dr. Hez talk was David Baltimore. And he just ripped into this, saying that it was um, a violation of every scientific norm. It threatened science's and scientists hope that self-regulation would carry the day. I think people are terrified that this one, some people called it a misstep. I think that's like calling, you know, the 9-11 the attacks, you know, a bit of a blip. People are saying that what Dr. Head did could set back the entire field. Um, and researchers who are hoping to use CRISPR therapeutically in adults, no embryos, no babies, are saying that even they here in the United States are terrified that the FDA and other regulatory authorities simply will not trust scientists anymore to regulate themselves, to police themselves. So there's some reporting and questions starting to emerge about who knew what when about what He was doing. Do you think scientists who knew about this in advance had a, a duty to make this public to try to stop it from, from happening. Is there a culture of, of silence um, that may have influenced what went down here? 
Well, as in your terrific reporting, Rebecca, with the scientist at the University of California, Berkeley, who knew that this was going on and chose not to, you know, apparently mention it to anybody. Um, I showed your story to a number of scientists here, and they were shocked at that, too. I talked to a couple of bioethicists who had had extensive conversations with JK, as they call him, um, over the last two years, starting in early 2017. They say they, they had a sense that he was going to try to do this. They claim they had no idea that he had actually done so. I confess, I got a feeling in speaking to them that it's almost as if they did not want to ask that final question. And all of their discussions, which seemed to them, or they hoped were sort of theoretical, they apparently never said, so, have you done it yet? Have you done it yet? Are you going to do it tomorrow? Etc. So there was both the culture of silence and a little bit of don't tell me I don't want to know. So Sharon, behind the the what of what JK did, do you have any more insight into why he did it? You know, <laughs> you you take on the one hand the YouTube birth announcement, which allows interested parties to email the weeks old babies, apparently. <laughs> um, and then this, you know, presentation full of 50-something, you know, dense scientific slides and his impassioned explanation that he is aware of villages in China where the HIV positive rate is 30%. So on the one hand, it looks terribly self-promoting, self-aggrandizing. I mean, how many scientists announce what would be a crazy but significant advance on YouTube versus, you know, he seems to be genuine in saying that he wants to do something that will prevent HIV. And we haven't said explicitly, but the genome editing that he created in the embryos, now the two little girls, was to alter um, a gene and therefore a protein so that the uh, HIV virus cannot enter cells. So he purports to have been, you know, trying to do the world some good. He portrays his work as um, selfless, as in the public good, as something that could really make a difference to to personal health and public health. So speaking of the science, and you touched on this before, the gene that he targeted is one that you know, disabling could theoretically prevent someone from getting infected with HIV. But that comes in the context of when you hear about the promise of CRISPR, it's usually the potential to cure genetic diseases like congenital blindness or an inherited blood disease. Is it kind of odd that he picked HIV AIDS as a target? It's Definitely odd that he picked HIV AIDS. Whenever scientists talk about if there's ever a day when we should contemplate human embryo genome editing and births from those embryos, they all, without exception, say that that has to be for a serious, unmet medical need. It would target a gene like Huntington's, perhaps progeria, the accelerated aging disease, something for which there is a an unmet need, which is a serious, untreatable, even horrible, life-threatening, life-shortening disease. And that simply is not what we had here. And Sharon, from a technical standpoint, did this CRISPR experiment work? He said one of the girls had both copies of CCR5 altered, while the other had only one copy altered. That's right. So CRISPR is not 100% efficient when you inject it into cells or into a cell, as he did. It simply doesn't reach all the cell nuclei. So you can leave one of the two copies 
of a gene that a cell contains unedited, and that seems to have been what happened with one of the embryos. So the other sort of weird quirk here is that he said that all along the way, he informed the parents of things like this. And that's the other very important concern here, just how well informed the parents were, what they understood about the genetics here. So what it means is not only that one of the girls has apparently a standard copy of CCR5, but no one knows what that will do, whether it really will decrease her risk of HIV. But there's an even worse outcome here. As the embryo developed, apparently, according to data that he presented yesterday, not all of the cells have even one edited CCR5 gene. Now, we don't know where those cells are. If those are the immune system cells, those are, of course, the cells that HIV enters. If there is even one immune system cell that has a standard CCR5 gene, then that girl or these girls are not protected against the very thing that Dr. Hayes say motivated him to conduct this, you know, totally outrageous experiment. So this is maybe almost certainly a little premature, but I'm curious about how this story is going to be remembered in decades to come. Dr. Huss says that history will judge him favorably. I know people have made comparisons to the early days of in vitro fertilization and, and, you know, that maybe there would have been similar outrage had Twitter existed in the 1970s. What do you think, you know, 10 years from now, how we'll think about this? Curiously, the scientist, the doctor who did the first IVF baby in 1979 won a Nobel Prize. I don't think Dr. Ho is going to win a Nobel Prize. I do think that this will set back the field for many years, but I think that CRISPR genome editing, especially of what should we say, living born people, um, is absolutely going to proceed. I think that any human embryo work leading to uh, pregnancies, i.e. for reproductive purposes, is going to be scrutinized incredibly carefully. But honestly, that was always going to be the case. I mean, you can't even do that research in the United States. That violates regulations. It violates federal law. It's both a civil and a criminal offense. So if you ask me to fast forward 10 years, I would say that this is going to be not a big red stop sign. I think it is going to be a yellow light, a go slow here. But I think that we will one day see responsible, ethical, above board, done transparently, human genome editing of embryos that lead to pregnancies, babies, and eventually adults. So we had mentioned those promotional YouTube videos that Hu put out. And at the end of one of them, he provides an email address for his lab for viewers who want to email him. But he also provides another email address. Uh, that's a Gmail account for viewers who want to write to the two gene-edited newborns, who Hu says are named Lulu and Nana. Remarkably, that email address is dearluluandnana at gmail.com. So Sharon, if you were to write an email to these newborns, what would you say? Gosh, I think I would ask, how do you feel about being part of history? And do you feel like a guinea pig? So Dr. Ho said that he uh, got a promise from the parents that he could and would monitor the health of the two little girls for at least 20 years. The children in question did not agree to that. So we again have the question of informed consent. Sharon, that was great. Thank you for making the time and for dialing in from Hong Kong. Thank you. So it's um, three in the morning here. Um, I am going to go to sleep. Wonderful. Sweet dreams, Sharon. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Before we go, a quick coverage note. 
I hear Adam is flying out to California this weekend. Adam, are you getting tired of the Boston cold? I am getting tired of that. And uh, so I will be heading to San Diego this weekend to cover ASH, which is the big annual blood disease meeting. Um, I'll be writing stories, and I'm also going to be doing a pop-up email newsletter. Uh, you can find details to sign up for that newsletter on Stats homepage. Thank you to Hyacinth Ebonato and Dom Smith, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, where are you listening from, ask us questions, or just rant about how horribly wrong we are. You can also forward those emails you sent to Lulu and Nana. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. We really do appreciate the feedback, so thank you. See you next week. <laughs>